It's Monday, February 4th. Welcome to Market Fuller. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from MFAM Funds, it's Bill Barker. Happy Monday. Thank you. It's a happy Monday for people in New England after last night's atrocity of a game. Maybe the most unwatchable of Super Bowls. And we'll get to the Super Bowl, don't worry. But we've got earnings, we've got some activism news, we're going to dip into the full mailbag. But we're going to start with Merger Monday, because it is, once again, Merger Monday. In this case, Ultimate Software, great name, being acquired by a private investment firm for $11 billion. This is an all-cash deal. Shares of Ultimate Software up 20%. Good day for the shareholders. And um, this is one that I don't think we've ever talked about. Like, what does this company really? do besides have a great name? Because this is this is one that you and your colleagues in MFAM funds have known about and uh, I believe invested in uh, for a while now. Yeah, it's a happy Monday for shareholders of Ultimate. Uh, two of our funds uh, are have been long-term shareholders uh, of it, thanks to Tony Arsta. Let's give credit where credit's due for uh, his work on this company going back. To uh, at least 2014, probably earlier, um, and it is a, a payroll and human um, management, human resources management company, uh, which is geared toward sort of um, middle-sized companies, and it has had a, a great run. Of course, the employment numbers, not just recently, but for going on seven, eight years now, have just been very good. And so, they've got more and more work to do. They're competing with a company's better-known company, it would be Paychex in the space. But uh, um, I think they have been uh, giving up market share to uh, not only Ultimate, but some of the smaller players. And the 20% premium that is uh, on Ultimate's price today uh, is uh, there are other companies like Paycom and Paylocity, which are two other very similar companies, but smaller, um, which are going up in sympathy as people think. Well, if I can't get Ultimate anymore, uh, maybe maybe the things that are, are out there uh, and might be acquired. So you've got those companies being up two five percent today. So why do you think they agreed to be acquired? Because if, as you said, they're they've been doing a decent job of taking market share from Paychex. And just to put some numbers around this, Paychex, about a $25 billion company with this buyout, obviously, Ultimate Software being valued at around $11 billion. So, it's not like they were dramatically smaller than Paychex. And if they were gaining on them, I'm curious if they always saw this as the logical conclusion that, hey, at some point, we're gonna, if the price is right, we're going to agree to be bought out. Um, because I'm sure there are at least a few shareholders who are looking at this saying, no, I, even with the 20% premium, this was a train that was running well, and I wanted to keep riding it. Uh, I'm sure there were. You've got it's a founder uh, um, uh, CEO company. He's still there. He's been there and for uh, I want to say. Twenty some years, and so I think one of the things specifically about this company that it points to, and with some pride, is its um, the company culture and how they have ranked in some Forbes uh, rankings of, of you know most beloved companies. Uh, I think they were in the top ten a couple of times, and. Uh, so, in terms of you know employee happiness and, and admirability, and I think that they have 
pointed in their press release to this being a way to uh, maintain the company culture. And and so if if and now I'm going to speculate if the founder wanted uh, you know some sort of payday uh, that that he could realize through this and yet maintain the company and the culture that he loved. And he's found a buyer that's willing to do that in a way that he didn't think could necessarily be done in the public markets. Maybe that's a rationale, but that's speculation. Let's move on to a pretty boring company. Uh, I say that boring unless you like making money. Second quarter profits and revenue for Clorox came in solidly ahead of expectations. Shares of Clorox up 7% this morning. And unlike other companies in this space that we've seen, sort of consumer products companies that have a lot of different levels to their portfolios. Yes, they've got some household cleaning products. Yes, they've also got some food products, that sort of thing. Clorox, unless I'm missing something, appears to be just in the business of cleaning stuff. Yeah, you're right. You're missing a lot. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Enlighten me, by all <laughs> means. Well, the divisions are cleaning household, um, which includes charcoal, cat litter, um, and uh, glad bags. Uh, lifestyle is really the uh, fastest growing. Uh, they've got Brita water filters and dietary supplements and uh, some salad dressings. So they are best known, uh, of course, their name being Clorox, and, and there are some other cleaning products like. Um, uh, the Clorox brand goes on a lot of them: Pine Sol, 409, Tylex, um, things like that. But uh, they they do have a. It, it's it, none of it is edible stuff. They're not in that part of the, the grocery market, uh, grocery store. Uh, but they've got a couple of brands that are just completely dominant in their category. I think Clorox has got, in terms of bleach, 60 to 70 percent of the bleach market. Despite the fact that I can't understand how branding bleach makes it better. Uh, Kingsford Charcoal, just uh, I mean, name two other charcoals. I really can't. No, uh, I told you to name two other charcoals. Uh, Ten bucks. Isn't there one uh, like Surelight or something like that? You're just making up words. I don't know. <laughs> Surefire. Surefire. Quick light. Something like that. Fire, something was light. I know it's in there. No, it's Kingsford, and then there's everybody else combined. I think has got like 25 percent of the market. Uh, so they're just completely dominant there. And of course, uh, Fresh Fresh Step Kitty Litter is another one of their well-known brands. If you happen to be a cat owner, I just typed in charcoal brands into Google. No, no, you don't get ten dollars for for I'm, googling no, something. I'm not, I'm not trying to. I get ten dollars <laughs> from you for cheating, um, and not only. Have I not heard of these other brands? Uh, I want to know, and, I, and after the show, we'll do a, uh, a little bit of a deep dive into uh, the branding of a charcoal called Jealous Devil. Have you ever heard of Jealous Devil? No, but I'm not from that part of the country. What part of the country? I don't is it? know. It's just it's. I'm from the Kingsford coal part of the country, which is most of it. Okay. Um, as I said at the top, I mean, this is a this is. Hard to get excited about if you're an investor, and yet it really does seem like one of those obvious investments that, uh, unless you are someone who is at a point in your life where you're just thinking, all I want are growth investments, all I'm looking for is uh, the David Gardner rule breaker types, 
it really does seem like Clorox should, uh, if not be a requirement to be in everyone's portfolio, it seems like uh, you'd need a good reason not to have it in there. And I don't own shares of it, but as you said, they're dominant in what they do. Um, I believe they pay a dividend. Um, it, it's up 20% over the past year for a choppy year for the market. And it's hard to envision a climate where people decide en masse to just stop buying cleaning products. It is. So I'll give you the bear case against it. Uh, and it's that uh, private label stuff, Clorox being an example. Why should Clorox be dominant? Five, ten, fifteen years from now, you know, if if you buy Clorox bleach, because that's what you know, mom bought when you were um, you know growing up, and so you you inherit a lot of consumer brands in that in that manner. Um, nevertheless, uh, why why not buy generic bleach? I mean, they've got to they they are able to take that Clorox name and then put it onto some other things that you might. Trust like hand wipes and things uh, like that. It, it connotes cleanliness, uh, but there are they're involved trash bags, um, you know, kitty litter, uh, things that you you know are under attack from private label and uh, stores are getting better at uh, creating their the store brands and so that's that's the reason to think maybe the next ten years won't be as good as the last eighty. You know, for for some of these brands, but you know, to date, they're able to maintain relevance. So I, I think that they uh, can continue to pay a hefty dividend, and buy back some shares, not have to take big risks, and focus on uh, you know efficiencies that that drive uh, better margins. And and that's what the stock price today is reacting to is is a little bit of a turnaround in their margin story. Papa John's in the news this morning, and I suppose it makes sense given that yesterday was traditionally Super Bowl Sunday, the biggest day for pizza companies in terms of sales. Shares of Papa John's up 10 to 12 percent this morning after getting a $200 million investment from Starboard Value. For those unfamiliar, these are the activist investors who took a stake in Darden restaurants about five years ago. and. Not all that surprising when you look at their track record when it comes to activist investing in the restaurant space that the stock would be up like this. Yeah, it's it's been uh, pummeled by all of the missteps that it has made in the last two years, I guess, and the sort of chaos in in terms of management and ownership that continues to be there. And I th- it. It would be very fascinating to know what Starboard thinks is the right path, because there are so many different ones, including rebranding. Uh, what do you do with the owner, founder, what, uh, what, and his ongoing stake? I, I'd love to hear them talk about it. I think they've done a pretty good job with uh, the rebranding, just because I, I, they've clearly realized, well, we can't completely walk away from the branding. We can't do a, a, a you know, a, you know, an AOL into Oath. We can't do a Tribune Media into Trunk. Not that those are great examples, um, but 
the way that they've been advertising, uh, focus, dropping the Johns and just focusing on the Papa part of it and highlighting local franchisees in their commercials, I think I think they've done a good job with that. To your point about John Schnatter, I mean that really is the issue they're going to have to deal with because he's still the dominant shareholder. He's not going away. He gave a comment that, uh, and I'm quoting here, he's evaluating legal remedies. Uh, he claims he made a better proposal to the company than Starboard Value did, and I don't know. I just, I, I really hope that he's got a good friend nearby who can pull him aside and say, "John, just take the money. <laughs> you're the biggest shareholder, and your shares are now worth ten to twelve percent more than they were last Friday, and it's in your financial interest to let these people come in and and do what they're going to do." Yeah, I, I mean, and that's not a strategy to go in with an investment. Is we will find that friend to pull him aside and say, no. "Get out of here!" Right? So they have something else that's part of their strategy, and I don't know what it is, but it it's there are so many different directions you can go with this. It's still a much smaller company than you would think, given your knowledge of the brand uh, in terms of, uh, and of course, the, it's been bleeding market cap. Uh, grotesquely, as far as uh, shareholders would be concerned, uh, for a while now, it's only a one and a half billion dollar company, and that's after going up ten percent today. So, I think that there's a lot of room for it to grow, but it needs a plan that it does not have today. It absolutely does. And you go back to what Starboard did with Darden Restaurants. They had levers they could pull with that business that they don't really have available to them in this business. Papa John's is Papa John's. Darden Restaurants at the time had a number of brands under the umbrella, including Red Lobster. And that was one of the moves by Starboard, was to just sell that off. So, um, it, it will be interesting to see how this plays out. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Question from Brett Kelting at Wartburg College in Iowa. Brett writes After disappointing earnings results from ATT and Verizon this past week, what do you consider a better buy for a long term dividend reinvestment portfolio? Keep up the great work. I love the show. Uh, thank you, Brett. Uh, go Knights, the mighty Knights of Wartburg College. Um, thoughts on his question? Uh, I don't have specific thoughts about AT&T versus Verizon. Um, they are currently sort of the Coke and Pepsi of the mobile space here in the United States. They have roughly the same market cap. Um, so, um, yeah. Beyond that, I don't have strong feelings about the way either one of them is being run. Right. I think they're they're both good long-term investments, and I think dividend reinvestment is uh, a wise way to uh, manage your money. And uh, I think that that both will turn out to to do well. Um, I guess I, I am currently a a happy user of Verizon's services and a less happy user of AT and T's services. Uh, so. Purely from anecdote, which is worth nothing, I would say. <laughs> Verizon starts from a better spot in my head. Um, what about you? So uh, I was just thinking as you were talking about that about uh, how investors would have done very well. You don't still have Comcast, do you? I do. Yeah, and I was just oh. going to say Comcast. I mean, you would have done very well a few years ago. 
reading all those stories about how hated Comcast was and the terrible customer service and all of that, and just buying shares then because the public sentiment against Comcast was was pretty strong, and in general, that has been a business that has rewarded shareholders. Um, but just to touch on the dividend reinvestment, um, kudos to Brett for for going that route because I think we we do a good job on this show and at the Motley Fool in general of telling people, giving the advice of, hey, look, when you start a job, if there's a 401k plan, particularly if there's a matching component by your company, go ahead and get involved in that because that's free money and you lock and load right at the start and then you sort of forget it. I think in terms of locking and loading a financial mechanism, right behind that is dividend reinvestment. You know, when you buy shares of a company and they're paying a dividend, and you you look at it and decide, well, I could take the cash, and maybe let that build up over time. But you could also just say, no, 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 plow that right back into more shares. Yeah, the dividend reinvestment is sort of exposes to a degree the the myth of what uh, investor returns have been uh, over the long term. That is, when you're looking at Stocks, S and P 500, whatever, has returned 10% over some huge period of time. All of that data comes from an assumption that you are reinvesting the dividends as soon as you get them, which historically is an aggressive assumption for what investors actually do. And so, to actually do that is going to get you a much better return over the long term than what investors typically do, which is spend the dividends rather than reinvest them. And so it, that is done through your 401k or through mutual funds as they as stocks pay uh, dividends, the mutual fund then reinvests those, not always right on the day they get them, but you know, reasonably soon. So it's a great thing to implement throughout your uh, investing life and you'll do much better if you're constantly reinvesting dividends than if you're spending them. I don't know if we actually answered Brett's question, but uh, no. But there are people who will AT and T versus Verizon. You have people that that would love to answer that question that appear on this show. Absolutely. Who are they? I'm not sure. They'll be on soon. (laughs) Um, Let's wrap up with the Super Bowl uh, and specifically the the commercials. And we we were talking about this before we started taping. So as a group, you know, if you look at the stories that are being written and, and published today. Um, there's obviously the traditional winners and losers, sort of best ads, worst ads, that sort of thing. We got something this year, though, um, and I think as a group they were fine. There were, you know, there were uh, there were definitely some good commercials. There were others that were uh, like the like the game itself were kind of boring and forgettable. Um, but we got something this year that we don't often get, and that is a little bit of a feud post commercials. And for those who missed it. This is a feud in the beer industry. Uh, let me give you a little bit of context here. Uh, Anheuser-Busch had a 60-second commercial featuring um, a medieval knight, a Bud Knight, if you will, uh, who receives a shipment of corn syrup, uh, but says, look, we don't brew our beer with corn syrup. Um, let's go to the Miller Light Castle. And so, they go on this pilgrimage. They get to the Miller Light Castle, and they say, no, we already got our shipment. Try the Coors Light Castle. And Anheuser-Busch just very plainly using their time to say, you know what? Think what you want about our beer, but we don't brew it with corn syrup. And those people over at Molson Coors, they do. 
End of commercial. And Molson Gorse, not happy about this. And also not happy about this, the National Corn Growers of America. Well, yeah, the National Corn Growers uh, and the lobbyists for for corn have come out publicly. Has Coors responded in any way? Um, I've seen I've seen comments on their behalf. I haven't seen a direct quote from the uh, from the company themselves, but. Uh, yeah, it's an and and you know what, we probably won't see one. I mean, if if I'm advising them, I'm saying, hey, look, the corn growers are sort of responding on our behalf, so let's just keep quiet about this one and go about our business. Yeah, and the Budweiser, I think there are a lot of confused viewers now. Bud, you know, tests all these things. This is one of their biggest uh, movers. You know, is of the year. You know, is whether their Super Bowl commercials are successful and whether it's a strategy and you know a campaign that they follow through on and so i'm sure they've tested this but it is counterintuitive because i do not think of bud drinkers and maybe bud light drinkers are, are a little different but um, as being overly concerned with the corn syrup content of their of their beer Speaking as somebody who has had a few Budweisers in his day, unlike yourself, so your your comment is not worth anything. Dan might might have something more relevant from the anecdotal space than uh, than you, because you're you're sort of violent toward beer. Really, I'm, no, no, I'm not at all violent towards beer. I just I just don't drink refuse beer. Refuse to drink it. It's not even a refuse. I just don't like the taste. And and, and as I say from time to time, that's okay. I drink other things. I don't necessarily need to add beer to my repertoire. Uh, Dan, any thoughts on this? Oh, wow. A beer I don't like doesn't use an ingredient I don't like. Not, I'm not wasting too much time thinking about this one, Chris. <laughs> but, but, but look, the ad was pretty entertaining. Credit where it's due. Anheuser-Busch thinks about this a lot. I have been at investor meetings where there are hundreds of people in attendance, and they have taken their 20 minutes to talk about their company and use half of it to talk about their commercials in the Super Bowl. So this is wow! I thought you were being a little tongue in cheek there. No. there. no, the the business of Anheuser-Busch genuinely looks at the Super Bowl commercials as a significant needle mover for their business, or maybe not a needle mover, but an actual opportunity. Oh yeah, above and beyond just the branding and the oh that was a funny. Certainly, commercial. when it goes right, and they have and they've had many many Super Bowl campaigns, and they have you know been able to follow through on them, and it's sort of a launch of a new campaign some of the time, and you can think of I don't know. The Budweiser Frogs. There are any number of Super Bowl-related campaigns that have worked out, and um, it may not have been intuitive to all the viewers. Certainly, wasn't intuitive to me that Dilly Dilly was something that would help you sell beer. Uh, but they don't. They don't just throw stuff against the wall. They, you know, they test this stuff. They're making a major investment during Super Bowl time. One of the great things about Dilly Dilly is if I hear it like in the wild, I immediately know that I'm not going to be friends with that person. It's extremely <laughs> helpful. And yet, uh, I guess it was a successful campaign, yeah. which may be retired at this point. Well, they'll, they'll move on to this. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see how much they I mean, get out make, of this taking shots at Coors Light. Makes at least as much sense as the Andy Warhol Burger King commercial. Yeah, I, yeah I, I that was kind of lost on me. I don't know. Does uh, that make you want to 
go to Burger King. No, not really. I, did, I enjoyed the uh, a shout out to a longtime listener Jason Newman for um, uh, the Pringles commercial uh, that he pointed me towards because I missed that during the game and then went onto YouTube and watched it and enjoyed that. Um, uh, enjoyed the Hyundai uh, commercial with uh, Jason Bateman as well. That was that was enjoyable. Um, all right. Time to get out of here. Uh, you can read more from Bill Barker and his colleagues, like Tony Arsta, who found Ultimate Software and made money off of it uh, by going to mfamfunds.com. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Let's do this thing. You good? Yeah. <laughs>